A fortnight seems like a century when you have to wait that long to hear the dulcet tones and intelligently witty thoughts of Rebecca Davis on Plan B. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, John. I can barely form a thought. Such is my my extreme cold and general grumpiness at this weather. My goodness. Are you not somebody who likes the cold weather? It's just that looking out of the window, as I was just discussing with your producer, it's just this extraordinary shade of grey, which leads one to believe that an actual tsunami is about to visit itself upon certainly where I am in Key Point. I mean, I had the most extraordinary rain, um, rain, hail storm around quarter past 11. There was this monstrous clap of thunder and then 10 minutes of a biblical deluge of rain and and hail. It was quite extraordinary, it really was. Yes, biblical. It does feel a little like that. I think it's also, you know, the post-apocalyptic conditions we're living in matched with this dramatic weather. It does make one feel a little bit unnerved, shall we say. Are we unnerved or more nerved by the Constitutional Court decision, which allows you and I to stand as independent political candidates? I'm thrilled by it, John. I think we should all be, and not just for what it says on, you know, on the surface, which is that individuals can run for political office now, but also that it genuinely seems to be the first step potentially towards paving the way towards a more truly representative electoral system. I don't know if you've had time to read the judgment, John, but I loved it in part because it sort of reads as this kind of manifesto for loners. I don't mean that in a sinister way. Manifesto for loners almost always means something sinister. I take back those words. I mean, it's sort of like a vindication of introversion. I mean, it says, for instance, you know, the Constitution says an individual has to be free to associate with whoever they like. Well, in that case, they must be equally free, quote, not to associate with anybody whatsoever. I mean, I just love that. They're saying, you know, why should we be forced into these groupings just because we'd like to, you know, bring political representation to our communities or whatever? It's not considering which electoral system is best. It's just saying, does the Electoral Act unjustifiably limit your freedom of association? And effectively it does, because it coerces you into being a member of a political party when perhaps you may not... There may not be a political party which in any way comes close to meeting your political ideals. And I think that what could possibly be negative about that? I think it's a definite step in the right direction. I was I was thinking about, look, because the government has 24 months to rectify the Electoral Act, and I doubt that it's going to move terribly quickly on this. So that means that the... Um, the local government elections next year won't be affected by this, but we do. The, the it's got to be finished by the time we have the provincial and national government elections yes. in four years' time. Um, and I was thinking about what caliber of individual, what sort of individual I would vote for rather than the post party, because there isn't a party that that comes close to being my ideal party. You know, my ideal party is a little bit of this one, a little bit of that one, quite a lot right. of that one, and just a tiny sliver of that one. And given the way our parliamentary system works, somebody who isn't independent is really going to struggle to make any kind of impact in in, in the National Assembly or in the Senate. And, you know, the days of a, a Helen Sussman alike making the impact that Helen Sussman made in the parliament of the 50s and 60s. I, I don't think we, 
I don't think that's an option anymore. So, you know, who, who's the kind of individual that I would vote for rather than going, you know what, I don't particularly like any of the parties, but that's the one that comes closest to my political philosophy. And because they're reasonably sizable, they have a chance to make an impact. So rather than vote for an individual, I'm actually going to vote for the party. Yeah, I've been considering this too. And it's interesting that in the court papers, the Speaker of Parliament actually said, we need three years to sort this out. And the Constitutional Court said, no, no, you get two years, which is interesting, John, because I immediately, like you, did the maths and thought, well, that's going to affect the next general election. Look, I don't know what the answer is in terms of how much impact any one person will be able to have. And as I said, if this is indeed opening the door to electoral reform, it may be the case that we get you know, contingent advancements along the way. But it's not hard to see for whom it would be appealing. And I'm thinking in particular of the Democratic Alliance's, you know, by now quite long list of disenchanted alumni. Someone like Lindia Mazabuko, perhaps. Someone like Musi Baimane. Herman Mashaba, who has already say, said, I see today, that this has to be just the beginning of... Um, electoral form. And I've even seen the suggestion, potentially, that someone like, in fact, the current president, Cyril Ramaphosa, should it get to a point where he finds himself at odds with even the reformers in the party, could this be an option for a figure like Ramaphosa, who finds himself unable to, you know, handle the tensions within his party anymore? I just think it's it's a very exciting possibility, John. We still don't know the logistics, how it will work out, what kind of impact such a person will be able to wield. But on balance, I think it's one of the more positive developments on our politics for a long term. Yeah, I'm not sure I would go that far. I, I, I think it was inevitable and it was absolutely right. Once the case was brought to the Constitutional Court, even a cursory reading of the Constitution would suggest that this was the verdict that was going to come. But to what extent it's going to shake up our politics? I'm, I'm a little more pessimistic about that than you seem to be. But, you know, I have a tendency to be positive at the slightest ray of light in our politics, possibly because I'm just you know, tired of being gloomy about it. But we have a problem in our country generally to do with legacy politics, to do with people voting along very kind of fixed, almost DNA lines. And I'm not saying that this is something that this judgment will do anything to address. But as far as I'm concerned, the, the, the more option there are for people to form and to vote in ways that can shift the current kind of the cosmic lines in our politics, I think, the better. Would you consider standing? It's a serious question. I mean, I've been lying down for so long now, John. I don't know if I can do it. I wouldn't, would you? Uh, I might. I might. The the thing that would stop me from doing it is the fear of losing, the fear of getting <laughs> only my sister, only my sister's vote. <laughs> and Nicola. That's, the, the, the fear of embarrassment would stop me from standing. Right. Yeah. An understandable one. Yeah. I've been really interested to read the two pieces that you have written this week for the Daily Maverick on this case in the Western Cape High Court, the activists, the rights of activists versus the right of big business. It's an interesting one, John, because this was not getting that much attention, but it's a very, it's a significant case. But secondly, because there's two ways of looking at it. So this is the case of this big Australian mining house. I should say big is a relative term, actually, because the lawyers have consistently said we are not Anglo-American. We're not one of these huge mining houses. But it's the Australian mining company, Mineral Resources Consortium, is it MRC, who are, have two 
very controversial mining ventures in South Africa, which have been the, the, the subject of loud criticism in public. And MRC have now sued for defamation six South African lawyers and human rights activists who have been repeatedly criticizing them in public. And the question is, are they right to do this? Because is it all right for a company to sue individuals for, in this case, millions of rands worth of damages, which they know they're never going to get because these people do not have that kind of money? And is it possible that what they're actually trying to do is simply silence all the dissent around their activities? Is this is, a slap suit? Is this a slap suit? Strategic litigation, which we've seen in other countries, which is designed to prevent public participation. And South Africa doesn't have any laws explicitly preventing slap suits. But the question is, John, I mean, from the start, this looks like a bit of a David and Goliath battle. And that's certainly how I went into it. I felt very clear that this was an attempt at intimidating these activists and that the law should treat it with the attendant disdain. But the question is, when you start thinking about it, what, and the, the lawyers for MRC point, said this yesterday. Say you're a pharmaceutical company who produces um, antiretrovirals, shall we say, for t- to treat AIDS, and they do so successfully. And then you get these loony activists who go around in public saying, these products don't work, don't use them. What means should be at your disposal in order to shut those people up effectively? And that's obviously an, uh, an example which might seem very different, but the... the the principle is the same. Should corporations have means at their disposal to, to keep people quiet when what they are saying is they claim totally untrue about their product or business? The argument is that these corporations should not be allowed to sue for defamation in the same way as a, a human person, a natural person, because they haven't experienced a loss, of reputa- a, lo- a loss of dignity in the same way. Their argument is, well, reputation sort of is dignity. Reputation is a corporation's dignity, and we should be able to make moves accordingly. But it is all a very difficult situation, John, and it's one that I'm going to be interested to watch, because we do need to guard public participation, particularly around things like environmental law. It's hard to think of anything more important. But at the same time, we have to understand also that everyone agrees freedom of expression has limits. And I don't think that freedom of expression should extend to being allowed to say that a company has facilitated murder, for example, which is one of the things which this company is accusing the activists of having done. Uh, on Cape Talk, Knocker. Yeah. I mean, perhaps that isn't PC of me to mention, but that yeah. was it, that your very own station was the platform for that. And yes, you've got to ask, where, where do you draw the line then? Should you have to produce proof when you go around making those statements, however wound up you are about the issues? Yeah. Just by the way, quite a few people would vote for both you and I if we stood together on the same political party platform. So. <laughs> On a much more serious note, the the revivification of Black Lives Matter following the murder and the protest of George Floyd. Um, You sent me an article by Zoe Williams in The Guardian, and it mirrors exactly my experience. My daughter is in Atlanta, and she's desperate to join the protests, but Mm. she's not allowed to because she's working for a family and she's caring for young children and her employers don't want her to join the protests because she might then bring coronavirus back into the home. And mm. we've been discussing it in phone calls and via um, WhatsApps. And she gets all her news about what is happening in America on this issue from TikTok. 
and I get all of mine from the New York Times and the Washington Post and these sort of formal news services. And I swear she knows more and understands better than I do. So that's also been my impression as well. There was a period, I think I mentioned it on this very forum, where I deleted all social media apps except one that was custom-made to simply provide a stream of kittens and puppies into my directly into my bloodstream. And even that social media stream was still inflected by politics in ways that I couldn't quite control, global politics, I should say. And this is the point about social media, I think, that us older fuddy-duddies fail to understand often, that politics is the lifeblood of these social networks. But whether they are TikTok, which you know, many of us outsiders look upon as simply a forum for silly dances or whatever, to Twitter, to Facebook or whatever. So, you know, I was, um, I'm an old girl of Rustenburg girls here in Cape Town. And when I went onto Facebook to see there was a sort of social media storm about all this, and I saw a photo of the matric girls of this year posing in protest against police brutality and in support of Black Lives Matter, my overwhelming feeling, John, was honestly one of, First of all, pride, but second of all, kind of amusement that these 17-year-olds were so politically aware at that age because that absolutely was not true of me or of my contemporaries, you know, back in 1999. Yeah, and and I, I, I spoke earlier this week, well, was it last week, doesn't matter, to the head girl of Westerford about the, the commitment to take racism seriously, which the staff had made to the pupils of Westerford. And mm. she's, um, she's an 18-year-old from Kyle who got into Westerford. And, and the level of, and this is not being condescending, I, I, at least I hope it's not, but the level of political sophistication in what she said to me was truly staggering. I cannot imagine any matric boy of my generation coming even close to that. I, I feel exactly the same way, and I think that we must, you know, we need to kind of infuse this into our constant critique of social media. Yes, it is a, a good way for fake news to spread. Yes, it is a good way for conspiracy theories to spread. But it is also bringing up this generation in a political environment that is, as you say, far more sophisticated than anything we had access to back in the day. And then Elmer Fudd from Looney Tunes no longer has the white to bear arms? <laughs> he doesn't. Can you do me an Elmer Fudd impersonation? No, I'm not going to. I need to practice because it's not something that I, I keep at the, in the top of the impressionist drawer. All right, all right. Elmer Fudd is no longer... So he is the shotgun-toting rabbit hunter in Bugs Bunny. And I believe... I mean, I'm not that familiar with the, the, the Looney Tunes canon, but I believe that he is... His gun is sort of quite central to his identity. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the notion of Elmer Fudd without that shotgun getting ready to pot a rabbit is hard to, to countenance. And yet you were going to have to, because in this brave new world, Elmer Fudd is no longer going to carry a gun. They are done with guns. However, not to be too alarmed, because he's not done with violence. His violence, however, is now going to be... Um, affected via a scythe. Elmer Fudd is to now carry a scythe of the kind that the Grim Reaper carries in kind of medieval portraits of the Black Death. And he will still be blowing up small animals with gunpowder and dynamite and the rest of it. But guns are officially off the table. This is where we're at because there's no such thing as scythe culture or mass scythe killings in America. Scythes are now where it's at. <laughs> 
brave new world indeed. Um, yeah, we've got more votes, um, but uh, quite a few people are suggesting they would only vote for the two of us if we were on one ticket. Um, I think most of them would have difficulty voting for me on my own. Um, less difficulty for you, but the two of us together. And as somebody says, yes, even if you guys didn't win, which you probably wouldn't, at least we'd have a jolly good vote. Laugh. <laughs> We have broad enough shoulders <laughs> and flexible enough egos to deal with that. Rebecca Davis, back with another Plan B 